Park. It's an 87 Precinct podcast side pod. It's Christmas, and I am joined once again by our most common returning guest. My brother Gary is back to square the circle on Evan Hunter's early juvenile science fiction stories that were published by Winston Science Fiction in the very early part of his career. So we've looked at Rocket to Luna, which... Quick summary, Gary. Uh, they go to the moon and they find a plant. And danger dinosaurs. They go to the past and they get time travel all wrong. Live dinosaurs. Yeah. And now we are searching for the feathered serpent with some teenage boy yeah. in Find the Feathered Serpent, mm-hmm. which was his first contribution to the Winston science fiction range. So before we get going, let's put this into Evan Hunter context and then we'll put it into a little bit of World context. World context, that sounds more dramatic than it needs to be. (laughs) Basically speaking, in terms of Evan Hunter, Ed McBain's career, the story we're talking about is literally either the third or fourth thing he ever had published in in his professional writing career. This one is? Yeah. Okay. So in November 1951, the story Reaching for the Moon by S.A. Lombino comes out. In December 1951... Fury on First comes out, which is a sports story. And then in 1952, there are two novels. One is The Evil Sleep, exclamation mark, by Evan Hunter, which has later been republished by Hard Case Crime as So Nude, So Dead. And also Find the Feathered Serpent. Right. Which he was persuaded to do because essentially it was a big paycheck. The publishing house he worked for and had his agent at, which was Scott Meredith, they basically came to one of the editors there and said, can you get us a load of people to start this science fiction range for kids? It's got to be a bit educational. And presumably, Evan Hunter did what I suspect what several people in the office did, which was a bit like, oh, really, do we have to? Mm. I don't know if I can write a novel. I've been doing all these short stories. And then someone waved some money around and they went, okay, yeah, let's have a go at that then. Mm. And he ended up doing three. But this is... Basically, this isn't just the start of his kid's writing career. This is his start, or this is the start of his writing career, essentially. Right. So, keep that in mind. Okay. That's what we're talking about. So, just to get a clear my mind, then, this is, timeline-wise... This is the first of the kid's novels in... Of which Winston, Dan- Danger Dinosaurs was one. And Rocket to Luna was another. So, this came first. This came right. first. Okay, I see. So, we've gone backwards in we time. We have gone backwards in time. Both literally and... Figuratively. And not at all. all, But let's have a little look at what was going on around the time that this was published, because I think this was published on April the 14th, 1952. I think that's the exact date. Um, I found a review that was dated that and had that as the release date for the book. So I've used that as a little trigger point to have a little look at what was going on in the world around then. Or certainly in terms of what we do in the main podcast, which is the charts in the UK and the US. (laughs) But it's quite difficult in 1952 because Mm. more or less modern charts don't exist. Right. I'm glad about that because if you'd asked me to guess, that wouldn't have Well, I can still ask you to guess what you think the the biggest uh, sort of song in in the UK was in 1952. Based on probably sheet music sales. Oh, right. Um, White Christmas. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Not in April. Um, April Christmas. April Christmas. (laughs) I don't know. Well, um, there was no recorded... Oh, um, oh. case... No, um, what was that mine? I, guess, um, I was going about playing the piano like Doris Day, singing Que Sera. Oh, like out of the Hitchcock yeah. film. 
but no. no. Let me put you out of your misery. Okay. Basically, there's no recorded music chart in the UK until November of 1952, when it when the official charts start. Mm-hmm. So it would have been measured on sheet music sales, mm-hmm. and there's no particular official record. But it's probably Unforgettable by Nat King Cole. Okay. Unforgettable. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's how the joke goes. <laughs> but the best-selling music in the US around this time was a song called Wheel of Fortune by K-Star, which I don't know very well. But I thought, because it's Christmas, uh, one of the big things at Christmas we like to do is rifle through the TV schedules and, and look at what was on. Well, let's look at what was not on at Christmas, but on the April the 14th, the week of April the 14th. In fact, no, the day. Let's do the day. The week would be here forever. Okay. 1952 in the BBC. I'm just going to go through these, and this is the sort of thing that we would have been watching in the UK at the time. It was mainly radio programmes, and then the the TV was only on briefly through Mm. the day and varied in regions. So it started at five past two in the afternoon on the 14th of April 1952 with racing at Kempton Park. Horse racing, that is. Okay. And at 14.30, we have racing at Kempton Park. <laughs> Followed at 3 o'clock by racing at Kempton Park. Okay. 3.30, racing, racing at Kempton right. Park. But at 20 to 4, we have a film called Men of Champagne. At 5 o'clock, we have some children's television. Hooray! Okay. What, what Does it say what? Yeah, it's called A Farmer's Boy, which is a film of open-air life. About an English boy who wants to be a farmer like his father. That sounds very... Sounds very charming. Yeah. But then at quarter past five, we have children's television again. Johnny Jones, His Home and Town. Which is the film about an American boy at home, at school and at play in a typical American small town. Okay. I'm sure that was very educational for everyone in the UK. And I wonder if it was an actual American import or Or just some... some awful American accents. Well, I wouldn't know. Have to I mean, see. British accents were, were pretty awful on television because of them people feeling they had to... Do receive pronunciation. Yeah. So, yeah. But then after that, it gets even more exciting because the next children's TV programme is just called Fire Engines! <laughs> and it is literally someone going to a fire headquarters on the Thames. So, or Thames Embankment, not in the Thames. Newsreel. A sur- world survey. All the fun of the fair is a programme. Music for You, starring Benjamino Gigli. And then a programme called Know Your Partner. A challenge to those who think they know all about their partners, be they husband and wife, mother and son, or business associates. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Does, it does, and it sounds like a format that has stood the test of time. Yes. It's Mr and Mrs. Mrs. Mr and Mrs, basically, isn't it? Then you have the weather and news down, basically after the news, TV shut. Right. But on the radio, if you finish listening to live chess on the radio, <laughs> which was on there, and then you listen to Richard Attenborough presenting some records from his collection. Why not? Yeah, doesn't say what they are. There was a show on the Light programme starring Charlie Chester and Tony Hancock doing uh, Calling All Forces, which was one of these radio shows that went out to our boys abroad. Yeah. Written by Bob Monkhouse and Dennis Goodwin. Wow. So that would have been a lot of laughs. That sounds like it. Good cast, good writers. But I'll go through a quick rundown of the top ten... US TV shows of okay. shows. shows US TV shows of 1952 according to retrowaste.com number one I Love Lucy mm-hmm. 
Never, no, never seen it. No, well, it's it not part ha- of our heritage, is it? So it has been shown over here, but no, it's not in any way. But part we all of our, know that it exists. It's not like the way Cheers was sown through our lives yeah. for years through the eighties and nineties. All yeah, I can say the Waltons, but I, I do actually remember seeing some of the Waltons. Well, number two was Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts. <laughs> number three was Arthur Godfrey and his friends. Who is this Arthur Godfrey? I've never heard <laughs> of Arthur Godfrey. Number four was Dragnet. So okay. is he? police crime thing there big influence on McBain number five was the Texaco Star Theatre number six was the Buick Circus Hour in which presumably cars did a lot of stunts is that that, I was just about to say about Texaco thing as well that's the actual well they're just the sponsors yeah yeah the sponsors for these things number seven was the Colgate Comedy Hour right number eight was Gangbusters number nine was You Bet Your Life which was the Groucho Marx helmed game show thing okay very good the bits of it i've seen and number 10 was fireside theater i don't know why i said it like that i just felt like you it was the right way to say imagine it. it would be a a highbrow well yeah a man in a smoking jacket presenting mm. adaptations of dickens or something like that mm. great so anyway that's 1952 sorted out or april anyway yeah so should we get stuck in to find the feather serpent okay we could find one review from the period this is from the kirkus review magazine and I well I won't say all of it because it's a bit of a giveaway of what we're going to talk about okay. but it does open with a ridiculous piece about a time ship <laughs> more sentiment than science this is a lush spot on those boyhood dreams of glory I'm not quite sure what that means a lush because lush to me sounds quite good yeah it, mm. but it, it's, just, it's not couched in a um, complimentary Terms yeah. either side. It doesn't sound like he's, he's giving it, paying it a compliment. No. But it's gone from ridicu- ri- ridiculous, ridiculous to lush. I'd <laughs> like it was ridiculous. ridiculous. This story features so many ducks. <laughs> Find the feathered serpent. Turns out it's just a duck with a load of feathers glued on. A duck with feathers glued on? I think you can tell we may have had some carver tonight. A duck. A duck. A load of <laughs> a load of ducks in a row yeah. with some extra feathers glued on, yeah. so they look like Between a them. hairy snake. Yeah. Right. Anyway, whoo! The front cover for this is quite a, a nifty little. I quite like it. Painting of three of the main characters and a snake, appropriately. I mean, we don't want to give away who the characters are yet. But it's 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 very it's definitely most definitely not a stock. Cover is it? It has been commissioned especially. Yes, yeah, painted for properly this. for this. And um, and once we've supposed, once we've um, talked about the characters, we can always tell you what it actually depicts. <laughs> and the the blurb about the author on this one, because as this is credited to Evan Hunter, mm. it does say about the author. Evan Hunter's varied background probably helped him devise the varied cast of characters: ancient Mayan civilizations bold Vikings and 20th century explorers who people find a feathered serpent. For this author, at one time or another, has been an English teacher, telephone dispatcher, lobster salesman, and now occupies an editor's chair. So they're suggesting those jobs have helped him with this story about time travel to Mayan civilizations. Right. A graduate of Hunter College, he also served with the military during World War II in Cuba, Hawaii and Japan, although it was actually after the war ended by the time he got to the Japanese theatre. 
Though Evan Hunter found studying of the ancient Maya hieroglyphics the most fascinating bit of research necessary to write Find the Feathered Serpent, he prefers the more usual forms of relaxation of piano playing and sketching. This is all hokum, is it not? Well, it's not, because he his pathway was art for a long time before okay. he decided to write. Just and he does play the piano, but by his own admission, feels he like wasn't very good at it. Biographising again, if that's such a thing. Like he did, because he didn't, in his one of the other books, he was all sorts of stuff, wasn't he? Oh, it? He's, he made up, he's made up a lot about himself yeah. in, in various bits and pieces here and there. That is the start of him basically narrowing his life down to a load of little sound bites yeah. that can go on the sleeve of a book. Yeah. Because most of that stays in place. Like the job list mm. is not exhaustive, I know this through my research, but it's his most significant jobs and he keeps, they, they're mentioned through the rest of his career. I don't think that he spent any time contemplating Mayan hieroglyphs. Well, that other than when he was writing this book, specifically when he was writing this yeah, book, the, the probably one pro- for half an hour in a library before he wrote this book. But well, you'll see. Well, yeah. I mean, and there is quite a complex numeric system described later on in the book, which would have taken some um, very deep research, I'm sure. I think my opening gambit with this is to state that I reckon this is essentially a book where the research he did for it is the equivalent of going on one Wikipedia page these days. Yeah. It's getting out the all um, the children's um, encyclopedia of Mayan civilization, and then taking some notes from it and stringing them together into a... Yeah, into a story. story. So, essentially, I think it should be clear by now, but do you want to give a, a, very, a very broad overview of what actually happens here, Gary? Oh, very broadly, there's an, a time ship... That has been developed by university um, with university funding by a doctor, and a team want to go back and they want to discover the origin. Well, of all the things they could do with time travel <laughs> technology, a university have just, as they do, funded one of these little projects being time travel, and it's, it it looks like it's work. And their first trip in it, from what I can I can understand, although it's not made absolutely clear, it's their first trip. Their first expedition in it is to go back in time, specifically to go and find the origins of kind of a god, a, a god story from Mayan civilization. Um, not, I need to look at the words to remember what it's called. It's um, well, essentially, this is based in historical fact, as best we yeah. know it. To this day, this this stands in that there was a ruler called uh, Quetzalcoatl. It was called the Great White God, but there was actually a ruler with that name. Yeah. It was also known in certain religions as. Kukulkan. Yeah. I'm, that's my pronunciation. Kukulkan, yeah. But there's also references to an earlier figure called that who's more of a deity type character. Yes. So they want to, this university, yeah. their ambition, they built a time ship, they could do anything with it, is they want to just check. Just check if... If there's any reason why that name why, existed the twice. Kind of like popped up from and why this, why, why the, uh, where the legend began. And I guess it's a bit like wanting to go back and see Robin Hood. Yeah, deciding what bit, what where he became, who it was based on, if anyone real, and where that became turned into actual, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a strange. When reality way to... became myth, or when myth became yeah. reality, and all that sort of stuff. But quite a specific window of time, I think, probably because this captures a lot of imagination with the kind of. Um, I don't know if there was other stuff going on at the time of a literature that explored this kind of era that caught, captured young boys' imagination of time travel or. Or Aztecs and Mayans and that kind of thing. Well, that's always been a fascinating bit of history. It's probably more important in America as a landmass, generally, than it is to us across the other side of the world. 
despite it being the Europeans who went over there and essentially cocked everything up for everyone. Mm. But I suppose we did that in America as well. Yeah. I will just report to our listeners, if you're hearing a strange rattling sound in the background, it's probably ghosts in your house. <laughs> it's definitely not radiators in our room here. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, 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 that's the idea, basically, of behind what they're going to do. And as a, a common theme with the other two books, uh, you know, a team are going, a, t- a well-picked team of people. Um, however, the inventor uh, has a, an, uh, an unfortunate accident, and instead of him going... With his highly trained team, he's going to send his like fifteen-year-old son or sixteen-year-old son or something. Yeah. To, so there's no in, in there's no place. there's so, no backup for this guy if he's if he's out of action. He's basically his route of is I'll send my teenage son, not someone else in the department. No. Not should we make sure we've got someone on standby? By you're on standby for being the first yeah. time astronaut thing. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. No, I'll send my sixteen-year-old son. My untrained son who didn't invent time travel <laughs> which would have been a handy thing to have so and that's really that's as much as from a broad overview that's as much they as go back in time an, an adventure happens yeah some stuff befalls them the end the, yeah, the end <laughs> happy christmas now i will say as well quite right at the front i do like the concept as a boy's own adventure mm. type thing it is a it's a good old romp and I just think the mechanism by which he uses, the, the mechanisms he uses to tell the story, to get the characters into the situations and to permit the story to progress, are pretty leaden. They're a bit sort of like, really, that's a bit... Like, for a kick-off, the, the main scientist is injured, so he sends his son. Yeah, they're, they're all very... They're, they're all very unbelievable. They're, not, they're all very fortunate... They're very um, serendipitous, and none of the other three people on the ship go. What? Yeah, hang on. Yeah, we're going through time. Yeah, it is. It's strange, but it is all about moving the story along or getting to that next, or getting the plot going. Uh, Yeah, it is, and you can tell it's. That's why I think you know it's half an hour's research down the library, and let's hit a certain word count. I'm not saying you, you know, but it is a good romp. It would yeah. actually, I, I, I can imagine it as a a, a a film, kind of a Jason and the Argonauts type style yeah, epic yeah. film without the actual, you know, but without actually that any kind of monsters and whatnot. But that kind of era of yeah. filmmaking, yeah, yeah. And the high seas and and jungle and yeah. that kind of that palette, it would make a great. There'd be film. some wonderful painted backdrops, wouldn't there, for the scenery, yeah. especially when they get to the. Uh, the, the ancient yeah. city and civilization. But you'd be watching the film thinking, well, that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Even, you know, when you're watching a time watching a time travel film and still thinking, well, that's a bit daft, isn't it, that they did that? I mean, yeah. or didn't he, for a start, his father injures himself simply by um, going to stand on a stool that someone's moved out of the way or a foot ladder or something, doesn't he? He's, yeah, and it's rather prosaic. Yeah. Should we go through it sort of yeah. chapter by chapter here? And the first chapter is our hero, Neil... Mm-hmm. Going to just have a look at the time machine that's being built, which I've been really—it's—it's it's quite well described. I still quite can't quite get it in my mind. Oh, the hourglass thing, yeah. Yeah, it's like um, I think of it as a um, um, a hot air balloon with a reflection, and it, so it's like an—it's literally like an hourglass, like a hot air balloon that's been squashed in the middle. Well, no, like a hot air balloon that's got an air balloon underneath it and on top of the basket. 
Because it says it's like an hourglass. Yeah. It looks like an hourglass. The machine was at least 25 feet high, a beautifully tooled work of aluminium and plastic. The control room was in the exact centre of the ship, and aluminium... Sorry, yeah, aluminium, not aluminium, sorry. <laughs> aluminium band that seemed to squeeze the plastic bubbles above and below into a constricting wasp waist. Exactly like an hourglass. I think I know why you might be having trouble visualising it. Did you, did you look at the glossary? No. There's a glossary of terms at the end of my one. I'm sure there is on yours. Yeah, there is. And in case you were unsure, it's got the entry for plastic bubbles. Oh, right. It says, plastic bubbles are transparent globes, much like the gun turrets on Air Force bombers. In the time machine, of course, the bubbles are respectively large enough to hold a passenger and a rotor shaft. Oh, thank heavens so, for that. So yeah, that might have helped plug some gaps for you there. Okay. Yeah, it's a strange... You can't imagine how it would sit up or it kind of... It, yeah. It's on props or something, I don't know. Um, it's got rotors like a helicopter on top of it as well. Yeah. Which seems very clunky for a machine that can travel in time that, but also needs to travel in space. That he felt the need to give it a quasi-realistic method of lifting up mm. and moving side to side it has to be off the ground though because if it's not off the ground it'll take the ground with it it'll take the ground yeah it takes a kind of a a, a bubble of time with it and it therefore has to be up and elevated which is always the thing about time travel is if you don't yeah it crosses your mind when you think about time travel if you if you travel from the same point in space to the same point in space but a different point in time it's likely that you're going to be above or below ground that wasn't there before you know so yeah. So that's good that you thought of that, but it is um, it doesn't say how it's kind of propped up, you know. The time travel angle, and here Neil's own heart skipped a beat at the thought, had its heart in the control room in the temporium crystal that lay covered by sheets of aluminium in the control panel. It's like everything's quite normal and, you know, modern uh, materials for construction like plastic mm. and al- aluminium. And then it's just, well, how do we get time? Temporium. Temporium. Temporium crystal. Absolutely fine. It's um, it's why not? It's the yeah, same as. Yeah, they'll do. I'm not fussed about it. Um, it's every time. What is it in Star Trek? Dilithium. No, dilithium's what they use for the warp. But um, whenever there's a, a temporal anomaly, there's a certain type of energy that's always referenced. And if that, if you ever hear them talking about the energy, it means it's going to be a time travel episode. Oh, uh, like tachyon. Tachyon is used. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. God, we're nerds. So, yeah, Temporium, why not? He does talk a bit more about the crystal later on, doesn't he? Some, he does a lot properties. Of but basically, what's happened to our Neil, Neil Folzen, yeah. as he's gone and seen his dad, who has been laid up with a broken leg. His dad says, you're going in time tomorrow. He's and, like, I'm playing baseball, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, not anymore. Yeah, he's, it's, it's, yeah. And they go into Yucatan yeah. to find out if the feathered serpent was a man as well as a god, what was the legend all about? So we get into chapter two, mm-hmm. Ocean Crack-Up it's called, because this machine has to travel in time and space, mm-hmm. so they're not they're not above where they want to end up, so it has to travel around the globe whilst travelling through time. Yeah, so they travel... I don't know if the, is the idea that the vector of kind of where they're travelling to in space is, is important to... Because it talks about the... Um, at full speed, the machine was capable of travelling some 300 years an hour, mm. which means five years a minute, a month every single second, the machine was calibrated so that it would land in the right place at the right time, and it has to travel in space. Well, I quite like that, though, because well, that's rather than it just blinking out of existence and blinking into the story, a bit like Doctor Who does when it's yeah. when the TARDIS is working, yeah. as it seems to be most of the time now, mm. 
it does involve a certain amount of skill and jeopardy in the actual travel, mm. which comes to fruition straight away because in chapter two, something's gone wrong and the machine's stuck on full speed. Yeah. In terms of travel, and they have to try and manually force it down. Yeah, it's a huge kind of chapter of explaining. Basically, it all comes down to them forcing a lever, doesn't it? Yeah. And they manage to pretty much scrape a chapter out of it. <laughs> but that's it, really. And then they kind of they kind of get it under control, and yeah. then they kind of wait to see if it's bad, if it's if it's okay, but they're not sure, and then it isn't, and it all happens again. And um, th- th- we should say about the crew, there's a crew of four, isn't there? There's... Yeah, so we've got Neil, who's our hero, yeah. uh, the, the lad. We've got Dave, who's the main pilot. Dave Saunders. Yeah. And then in the other bubble, below them, mm-hmm. along for the ride, is Arthur Blake and Dr Manning. Yes, who are a historian and an archaeologist, are they not? As Essentially, yeah. yeah. And who, by the end of this chapter, are dead. Completely deaded. I mean, in some ways, I was thinking, oh, here we go, because it was a bit like the moon one. We had to have all these kind of prop characters who were there to kind of give educational kind of sound bites on things as they were happening. But they didn't last very long at all. They were in a different... They were in the bottom section of the ship whilst Dave and Neil were in the control room. Yeah. And they were just every now and again going, everything all right up there? (laughs) And uh, Neil just keeps on saying, yeah, it's fine, but we can't, you know, we can't come down. It'll be a few hours yet. Yeah, they don't even tell them that something's gone no, wrong, do they? No, they don't. They just leave them there. And then they did. I have a feeling that at some point someone said to Evan Hunter, too many characters, you don't need these. Because mm. he was probably planning to do what he does in those later books, which is have someone along to be the, yeah. well, such and such is this and that and the other. Yeah. But instead that ends up spread around Dave and Neil. Yeah. Yeah, not even that much Neil, but... No, not Neil, um, Dave. But poor um, Arthur and Dr Manning, they're, they're dead in Chapter 3. Yeah, and not in, in quite a um, quite a horrible way, actually. I mean, it says um, so they crash, don't they? They 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 crash into a, a, the ocean, which is why it's called an ocean, whatever it's called. That last chapter. So they 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 appear. They they uh, they've arrived somewhere in time, but they crash into an ocean. Yeah. And they go to do, explore. Once they pick themselves up, they go to explore the pod where the um, where the scientists were and find the limp form of Doctor Manning hanging from his safety belt on the plastic wall opposite him. Below Dr. Manning, a pool of bright red blood was forming on the floor. Yeah, and then it well, was... Well, I like this one. Some of these pieces, and this is the plastic wall, lay on the floor beneath the dangling athletic form of Dr. Manning. Yeah. Athletic is not the word to use no. there, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not athletic you don't, you don't look at that situation and go, well, he's really well-toned. Yeah. And that, well, that's his guts just be- are dripping out all just, over your bubble. Just before a thing where it says, another piece of jagged plastic was embedded deeply in Dr. Manning's neck. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Manning's... Athletic neck. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, yeah, crumpled against what had been the aluminium floor of the lower bubble, curved grotesquely. His neck slanting at a weird angle from his body was old Arthur Blake. They're just both. They've both had it. They've yeah. been completely. They've not just died and they've gone into the water and they thought, oh dear. He's done quite a bit of description of these two have been mangled in this crash. <laughs> and then Dave, the senior member on the trip, says, "Let's give them a decent burial, Neil." They were swell guys. guys. They buried them at sea, which sounds to me like they just pushed them out of the hole. (laughs) (laughs) That was the last post. And the sea quickly reached out with a green, 
rolling tongue and hungrily snatched up its offering. I quite yeah. like that, but it does sound a bit more grim, more grim than it needed to be. Or, yeah. No sooner have they pushed them into the sea than they spot something on the horizon because they're now surrounded by water and it turns out to be a sail and a mm. ship. And that confuses them because in the time period they know that they've reached, somewhere between AD 100 and 600, there should be no sails on the water because the Mayans mm. or the Mayas have no sail technology. But what it shouldn't really confuse them because he's already said at this point they know they know pretty sure they're pretty sure what range of time they're in. But the, the part of the problem they crashed was that all the controls were locked out and going mad, mm. and so. Um, they they're not entirely sure at any where they are geographically at all. They say he says quite clearly we could be anywhere because it was going off in a direction and different speed than I thought. And so then he think he's thinking so we shouldn't be seeing any sails, but he has just said we could be anywhere so they could be anywhere. Yeah. But luckily they are exactly where they thought they should be. Yeah. So there's a bit of a he, he kind of I think he almost forgets he's written that in. He says which means we can be somewhere off the coast of Yucatan or somewhere off the coast of Pensacola. Or somewhere off the coast of Lower California in the Pacific. We might be even in the middle of the Great Salt Lake. But, well, no, they're exactly where, luckily, they were yeah. heading. <laughs> they think. They think they must be, because obviously then he talks about the sail. Yeah. But it's... But so they do what you would do if you see a sail on the horizon and you're about to sink and your time ship is just bobbing along. Uh, you get your guns out. Break out the rifles. Break out the rifles. And we get to Chapter 4 and we meet some Vikings. 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 But what are they doing? And there's quite a long piece about... Sorry, Gary. There's okay. quite a long piece about how to load and use a rifle as well. Yeah, which is interesting, because as you won't see later, because we won't be discussing it, the rifles play very little after this in the story at all. Yeah. Well, basically, that... they meet these Vikings, and they want to get them on side, so they don't want to frighten them. So they don't shoot anyone, and the Vikings go, can we have your weapons? And they go, yeah, all right. Yeah. And that's it. And the rifles never come back. No. Even later on, when there's quite a lot of fighting fight going on. And And a rifle would actually turn the tide of the entire thing. One shot from one rifle. And because he spends a chapter telling about how to reload one and how to use it and how to fire with it, then they never do. That's a good good chunk of chapter four, is how to use it. But then there's the best bit, which is... um, So luckily... Luckily, Neil has both remembered... What a Viking ship looks like from his history classes. Yeah, which I think we can all, you know, we can all have enough. a stab at, really, couldn't we? And eventually they get taken on board this ship because the time vessel's just dead in the water. Yeah, it's kind literally of Literally dead in the water. Yeah. And the Vikings obviously start speaking to them. <sighs> <laughs> this oh, may be my least favourite part you of know, the You know, when they see, remember that chapter before when he seeded the whole thing about having a Swedish family? Oh no, because he didn't tell us that until this point, did he? No. Because he says, uh, well, Neil hesitated, unsure of himself. It sounded like Swedish. Do you understand Swedish? Why, sure. My father was born in Sweden. We spoke every time my grandfather came to visit. Now, to me, that implies that what he would know is he would know some basic conversational Swedish, like the, hello, how are you? Yeah. You wouldn't. Goodbye, thank you. It's not fluent Swedish. And not fluent Swedish from, where are we, 58? Well, AD 100 to AD 600, something yeah. like that. So, I mean... Because Swedish is not a language that hasn't changed. No. I would say, I mean, I'm no linguist, but I would say over 2,000 years, it's going to have changed 
quite Huge, a, quite hugely, a because some of the cultures that would have contributed to all of those la- languages. Were if anyone is a language expert and wants to tell us that Swedish, a modern Swedish person could be understood by a Viking, then please do let us know. But I think it seems very unlikely. However, if that wasn't the case, then the book would basically just end here and they'd be killed and thrown overboard. (laughs) This is the old universal translator problem, isn't it? Yeah. How do you do anything that involves going to another planet or another part of the world even? where? Star Trek was the universal translator. Doctor Who was a power gifted by the TARDIS. Yeah. Um, hitchhikers as the Babel fish. Yeah. So yeah. So the, and this one has a Swedish grandfather, <laughs> <laughs> but not just a Swedish grandfather. I brought him with me. <laughs> Who's that little old man? <laughs> Basically, they can understand each other. That's all fine. They can talk to the Vikings. That's what we need to know. Yeah. And so they make friends with the Vikings, mm. except for one little sneaky Viking called Olaf, Olaf. Who, who thinks that they are devils. Yeah. They don't like him from the after, though they can no. tell he's a bit of a... He's the number two, and he's kind of whispering in. So Eric's the main Viking, isn't he? Eric's, Eric the Viking. Eric the Viking, yeah. And he's quite um, sort of wise as well as clearly strong and, yeah. and powerful as a leader. But the best thing about this is <laughs> almost everything someone says, Olaf pops up and goes, that's what the devil would do. Yeah. It's so, like, oh, what's, uh, your clothes are strange, Eric remarked. Uh, the clothes of the devil, Olaf said. Everything is, ah, the They're devil. Evil the and devil. They speak the tongue of the devil. Yeah. There's one way to sort that out. It is to end up with having to have a fight with this angry well, Viking. Well, they, they, they appease them for, for a few days by saying, well, we'll... We'll, we'll tell you where land is. Because they're lost. The, the reason we think the Vikings are over here is that drift, they tell them they've drifted off course. Mm-hmm. And so they're completely out of their waters. They're on the other side of the, the ocean. Yeah. And so they um, convince them that they can help find them land if they tow the time ship and take them on board, basically. Yeah. But, yeah, after a few days of not finding land, Olaf starts challenging them and and they have a big big old fight. But the, what starts it off, and one of my favourite lines of any book I've ever read, is that Dave, in the situation he's in, is like, I need a cigarette. Oh, yeah. He gets a cigarette out and he, he starts and, and Neil's like, don't do that, that's a bit weird. That doesn't exist yet. Because mm. they're all looking at him because he's got fire coming out of his mouth, essentially. Mm. Olaf says, asks him what it was and Neil says, my friend was smoking. Olaf's face remained blank. Tell your friend to throw this evil cylinder overboard. <laughs> that's my favourite line in this evil book cylinder. and almost in all literature. Especially when you think that that's ancient Swedish. <laughs> for the words I mean how often when his granddad came back did they talk about cylinders <laughs> unless his granddad was a was some kind of a oh Neil how nice to see you what shape is this <laughs> and in 3D the shape would be <laughs> yeah the demon breathed fire I saw it well see there's quite a little clever seeding there because I thought at this point the notion was these people have witnessed Dave apparently breathing fire maybe he's got something mystical about him that will come into history yeah yeah, no. But anyway, we better we better race on a little bit. But yeah. basically, they have a fight. He punches Olaf in the face quite a lot. Dave does, and then they hit land. Yeah, they're, they're saved by the land, aren't they? They're, they're, it looks like it's going to go bad for them, but land happens, and that distracts the fight from getting any worse. And so they they, they they're okay. And they've once they've arrived, essentially the issue is they need to find food, water. 
mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Um, Dave just basically decides he's going to hang around with the time ship and he leaves Neil to go off with the Vikings. Yeah, that's more or less than that. We don't see much of Dave for quite a long time after that. He's, he's uh, The only thing he, he does is um, he, he gets really annoyed that he can't smoke the last of his cigarettes in case people think he's a demon, which is a great way to give up. Yeah. So he gives his lighter to... He gives his lighter to Neil to look basically say, look, keep this because otherwise I'll just smoke all these cigarettes yeah. and then I won't have any cigarettes. I won't have any cigarettes and it'll stop me looking like a, a demon in front of all the um, Vikings. And you go into the jungle with all the Vikings and yeah. look for food and water or... But chapter 7 starts with them going off searching for for water in the jungle. And chapter 7 starts with three or four paragraphs where the, the perspective on the story oh, yeah. changes. So it starts, it opens, heat, intolerable, blazing down through the treetops, scorching the, for, the forest. Frost. Sorry, there's a hyphen. Mm. Scorching the forest. Sound, a medley of sounds that rose in cacophony to greet the eardrums. And over all this, a wearisome fatigue that pulled at the leg muscles and worked its way across your back and your shoulders. Sweat oozed from every pore in your body and your shirt clung to your back, hugging your skin. And so on. But it, suddenly it reads like one of those chapters in an 87th precinct yes, book. it's definitely Where the city, is, yeah. the city has come alive and this, you're, it's you in the city or in the weather, in the rain or the heat. So it's, that's a real precursor to the style. It's very interesting because he, he swaps both the um, perspective in time and the perspective in person. Yeah. To, to talking about, you know, talking in the third person about it in the past tense. Which it's completely incongruous with the, everything else. It's such a great style, such a flash yeah. of what he is going to become. Yeah. That once those couple of paragraphs are out of the way, he does it in another one of the chapters. He does, he does it yeah, a yeah. couple of times. And I think he did it in some of the other books. We had a couple of paragraphs where you are, oh, that's McBain. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like a McBain, but he hasn't got his muse yet. Yeah, he he's got he's got the he's abilities. developing his style, but he hasn't yeah. he hasn't hit the the best format to use it in. Yeah, it's just yeah because it, that works much better talking about a gritty kind of New York style city about crime and the kind of the the stench and the kind of the the, the, the filth of modern living and and the beauty of the of the city rather than going through a jungle looking for water with your Viking friends <laughs> that you've suddenly made because <laughs> you can speak Swedish and Swedish. Well, unfortunately, his language skill fails him when he gets caught by the Mayans. Yes, which is what happens. He tries to speak to them in Spanish. No, no, no good. No, because he's got high school Spanish, hasn't he? Yeah. He says, but... They try to get away, but basically the Vikings are captured, or this, this group is captured, the couple of Vikings and Neil. They meet... Uh, I am racing through a little bit here, yeah. but they meet the priest of this civilization, and he talks to them about, basically... They find some way of making contact through communication, through... The usual thing you see in these sorts of stories, gestures and pointing and saying, me, Neil. Neil? Yeah, they do a lot of that kind of um, first contact type of, yeah, drawing pictures in the sand with a stick and, yeah, pointing. Um, But essentially they make friends, which is lucky, because Neil's clearly very good at this uh, diplomacy through time. And they make friends and the Mayans give them a big feast, at which the only thing Neil missed was bread. Could that be significant? Well, it could be. Yeah. And they have a lovely feast, and there's some dancing and singing, and then another tribe attacks. Has they killed the snake by this point? I don't know. Have they killed the snake by this point? Uh, it's probably quite significant, isn't it? Because um, isn't that why they start to trust, trust them? Oh, yeah, sorry. I missed a really big bit out there, haven't I? Yeah, no, no I'm just... I, I... They try to buy the trust of the Mayans, and a huge snake comes out of the forest, and Eric, the Viking, 
slays it. Lops its head off with a with an axe. Yeah. He, so he um, he um, slays the serpent. He does. <laughs> yeah. He chops the front duck off the row of ducks that have been <laughs> glued together with feathers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's why they trust them, but yeah, and then they take them back to have a big feast in their honour. It's like a priest, isn't it, the main guy? Who, yeah. yeah. And, um, and well, there's a description thing. of of when the other tribe attack the Mayans, which is what I was talking about before. Mm. And he says, "Suddenly the battle burst like a balloon filled with blood," <laughs> which is both brilliant and awful at the same time. I think as a as a yeah. phrase. And then there's a chapter in one of the chapters. There's a description of how. The Mayans counted using fingers and lines in the sand. So, they, where have we got to? They, they've they've been attacked. Have we been attacked and we've sorted that out? Yeah. They have the first attack, but they realise that these Mayans are really quite um, outnumbered by some of their foes, but are able to defend themselves. But one day they'll be overrun. Yeah. Um, but with the help of the Vikings there as well, they're able to push them back a bit. They realise that if they're going to get back. They're going to need to um, be able to fill their ship with provisions enough to see them across a long voyage. Yeah. And that that's not going to happen this side of the harvest. So they're probably in for a long haul. So they have to make friends. They have to, they learn, have to, make, yeah, learn, learn, how to talk to each other, which they do surprisingly quickly. Quickly, quickly in story terms, but actually the length of time this takes, there must be at least a couple of seasons worth of story here. Yeah. Because yeah, it, 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 they're worried about the crops failing and not having enough yeah. food to share. They've got a lot of food in their stores, but not if you consider the fact that um, they've got to last them all winter, haven't they? So th- we settled into a bit of kind of, we're going to basically, the story's taking a bit of a breath here. You're going to spend a bit of time with Mayans, learn a bit about their culture. Yeah, and so Neil makes friends with uh, a brother and sister called Rick Salantila. Yeah, who befriend him and explain how to count. Yeah, by showing him plums. Yeah, and then uh, basically... He goes into a bit of detail about how basically they use a tally system. You have a five dots, well, you have four dots or a line meaning five. And if you stack them up, so three straight lines and four dots is 19. And so they establish how to count. They go to show him some things, don't they? Like uh, they show him around the city. This is where it gets a little bit like working through the encyclopedia, yeah. children's encyclopedia. There's a lot of kind of like, let's go and look at a traditional Mayan football game where well like a rubber ball game that they play it's like the precursor of basketball yeah and let's go and uh, look at like how they prepare some food and let's go and look at how they do their crops and whatnot and and all the time he's getting better and better at talking to them and then it, to a point where he pretty much can just converse in yeah Mayan. so so these vikings these mayans these modern americans can just chat amongst themselves but we didn't realise that sneaky old Olaf has gone off to form a little side troop to try and take over and steal a load of food with with one of the captains of the Mayan guards, mm. who's called Baz. Yes. Which is a really good name. Yes, yeah, so all the way through Full this. Full name Barry. <laughs> all the way through this, Olaf has been reluctantly going along, but thinking, why are we waiting? Why don't we just take their food? Why, why are we waiting for them, even though they've helped us and given us water and shelter? He's... He's just about the all round, isn't he? Actually, sorry, just 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 for um, accuracy's sake, I should say that they become friends before the snake encounter. Okay. They become friends by offering their axe. Oh yeah. They and they like their axes, and they're like, oh okay. And then they can see that they're not going to harm them. Then they kill the snake later on, before we get into um, Olaf's treachery, 
trying to get um, the crew. I think the idea is that Vikings hold on to power by force, don't they? Mm. By a, 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 a delicate balance of respect and fear from their crew. And Olaf is always pushing that boundary. He's probably his biggest challenger, therefore he's his number two. Yeah. Is to keep him close. And Olaf starts... He's Starscream to he is, Eric's Megatron. He is definitely Starscream. Um, I think we're going to have to rush forward a little bit in yeah. this because generally speaking, not much happens except learning about types Mines. of crops they've yeah. got, which does not include maize. No. But what happens is Eric explains the Viking way of farming, which includes crop rotation, yeah. which is still in use today. And but, he also explains how to use certain seeds to grow maize. He explains how explains them how to make bread, they which find they the, do very quickly and very effectively. They find the seeds for the maize in rattles that are taken from... So they get attacked again by the by the other tribe. They scare him off using the time ship, which the, they, he goes and gets Dave to bring a time ship over, which isn't fixed, but is just about able to lurch its way over and scare them. He's more or less bent the rotors into shape. Yeah, so that there's like a big spectacle which scares off the um, the attacking tribe, and the attack tribe attack with a with rattles for part of their battle cry. And when mm. they break open the rattles, what's inside them are just seeds knocking around. And Eric's Eric like, this is, this is um, maize. This is maize. And they, they don't think know what, how to use it, so he shows It's them. amazing, he says. Yes, he does. It's basically, yeah. So the time ship, unrepaired, comes to the rescue of the second attack. Yeah. They're all friends, and because they've saved them, they have the Mayans have a lovely party, which does involve the sacrifice of, of, the, your, of, of the, the girl that's made friends with yeah. you. Yeah, she's going to be thrown into a pit, isn't she? Yeah. Into a sacred pool. Neil is not having any of it. No. But there's a bit of jeopardy as he attempts with a lighter to no. set fire to something. So they sort of say, don't throw her in there. If the gods wanted a sacrifice... Well, the gods, well, if the gods don't want a sacrifice, they'll set that bridge on fire. Yeah. If you throw some, like, vegetables, throw some vegetables in and the gods will be... If they're happy, they'll they'll yeah. just give you a sign. And so he's, he's trying to work this lighter. Click, 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 click. But it's down to its last... To, down to the bottom of the wick. He's having a little... Finger the wick out of its little thingy, but he gets it going. Yeah, he saves the girl. Yeah. Then essentially, it's time to go home because uh, what happened? Olaf. Oh no, Olaf. Oh, no. Olaf gets killed. Olaf manages. The treacherous little. Git. He does. He does a bit of a. Uh, he manages a bit of a mutiny. He looks like he's getting away with it, but um, he gets a bit cocky and gives um, Neil the opportunity to free Eric. Yeah. And Eric kills Olaf, and then he drowns him. And it does, then, it's quite then, a good fight scene, isn't it? Yeah, and then um uses that to get the rest of his crew back in line. And they wait out the they wait out the season. Yeah. So the crops are ready. They to repair the time ship. Yeah, that's handy. And he's, but he can't this is Dave does nothing. He, he, <laughs> he just sits he there. sits around and you never see him for ages until he until his one job as an engineer is he's like, I can't fix this coil because I've got they don't have conducting it needs to be copper and we don't have copper here and there's not enough copper in the ship. It's if only there's some kind of conducting metal. Like and, all this gold. Yeah, all and Neil, the unqualified 15-year-old, looks like gold. Yeah. Uh, so. And then the Mayan jeweller makes him a, him a, a coil. Yeah, creates him a coil. That makes the time ship fly. And um, so they switch on the temporium. Crystal's fine anyway, that's not being broken. And then zip, 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 and they're back where they came from. Pretty much. Yeah, no one really questions too much about the two missing members of crew. No, no one, no one asks, do they? <laughs> no, they're just all very happy to see them. But Neil's quite upset because 
he feels that the, the mission has been a failure because they couldn't find anyone who knew anything about the feathered serpent. No, the famous Kukulkan. The famous Kukulkan who brought the people crops and new ways of eating and farming. And was a giant... Was a giant blonde man. Or blonde-haired <laughs> kind of man who was possibly had something to do with a serpent. Yeah, and of course it's Eric, isn't it's it? Eric. That is the end of the... He didn't. He was in front of him all along. And also bolstered in no small part by the appearance of a time ship at one point when Eric was fighting, his ship in the sky, and yeah, and and yeah. Combine that with him killing the old uh, snake. Yeah, and I think that yeah, they're trying to say that probably that he is Yukulkan. Yukulkan. Yeah. So we've whizzed through the end of that, but then we really. You know, yeah, you, you could. It's taken us probably about as long to do this episode as it would take anyone to read this book. Yeah, well, that's no bad thing, really. And it's actually, it's not bad. It's, it wasn't bad read. It was, um, it was, it was okay. It's just um, the problem was was the uh, being able to understand Swedish, being able to <laughs> quickly adopt ancient Mayan, being the fact that they even landed there at that time that no one just killed them on site. Yeah, the fact that. All that stuff. Um, there's not much else really. After anything after that is kind of um, just kind of like ripping along as a bit of a yarn, isn't it? After that, nothing else is too. It is a ripping yarn, yeah. definitely. Boys' own stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the time mechanism stuff in this is, isn't quite as annoying as in Danger Dinosaurs. No, he doesn't play with time in the sense that it doesn't. I wondered with his dad for have it going to stand, breaking his leg and stuff. I was wondering if there was going to be a bit of circularity in, in involved. Where for some reason he had to be him who went back, and they had to go and sabotage his dad because it just never made sense that his dad was yeah. just climbing out of the thing and where there should have been a ladder. Some engineer had moved you, it. You're he, thinking too quantum leap. Well, I, I, this was yeah. I was I was because of Danger Dinosaurs though because Danger Dinosaurs did the whole. Ziggy says there's an 86 percent chance that you have to push your dad off a ladder. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just strange for anyone who's to just blindly step onto a ladder that's not there and then just fall over and break your leg. But um, no, none of that. They, when they get back, it's just quite straightforward. They get back. The time thing was just to, like early Doctor Who, just to yeah. put them in the story, just to put them in a historical place, and then so let they something play out. Give them a reason to get leave it again. Leave it. Leave it. Out. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we need to come up with a rating for this story. We need a unit as well. My suggestion would be simply maize seeds. How, how many maize seeds out of a hundred would you rate this story? Hmm. I'm quite glad they killed the two scientists, so that gives it some plus points because then it wasn't just. Oh, this is the. Uh, this is called a aqueduct. Blah, 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 and lots of info dumping for the same. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a hard one, really. It's just very hard to compare it to anything in my head that. You just have to treat it in and of itself. Yeah. The, the number that's coming to my mind is a kind of. Um, it's kind of 67. Ooh. Maze seeds. 67, that's quite a high rating, I think. Yeah, it's not bad for what it is. I just don't know really what well, it is. Stick with that, Gary. That's fine. If the number coming to your head is 67. Yeah, but then I'm wondering if that's coming to my head because that's like a common number to pop into someone's head. Well, don't... No, you'll drive yourself mad yeah. if you start thinking about that. Yeah, 67. Well, I can tell you my response is a 50 maze seed. Okay. Which I think reflects that it is just a bit of hokum, a bit of boy's own adventure stuff. It's all right. I prefer the sci-fi... The more sci-fi, futury, spacey things. Yeah. I don't know if I'd have enjoyed that when I was a 15-year-old, but then I'm not a 15-year-old. I probably wouldn't have read that at 15. I think you'd probably... Mm. What do you reckon it's aimed for? About 12 years old? 
I reckon it's aimed for like being twelve year old, but like, so you're sort of thinking, oh, when I'm a little bit older, I might be allowed to go on an adventure type yeah. thing. There's a bit where he says Neil's sitting there thinking there's probably some kid dreaming of um, a Norseman on an adventure in a jungle in yeah. the future, and I think that's what he's trying to say is that I think it's aimed at the Neils of the world. It's aimed at the kid. I think it's probably anything from age eight to sort yeah. of seventeen. Isn't yeah, it? it's aimed at the kid who like, like comes home from playing baseball with his friends in the street and gets told, "Oh, you're going on to travel through time and have an adventure tomorrow." Yeah, don't like that. Imagining that rather than wowie zowie. Yeah. Um, that's great pops gee whiz so I think it's that's the um, audience yeah, it certainly doesn't resonate really as a from, for that audience I think it's a, I, I would stick with my 67 well, for a fine. general adult then nah, there's some YA that crosses over this does not cross over as far as no it's 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 a very obviously early entry in the author's yeah canon it's it's clearly a, a knocked out quickly work of someone who's used to writing perhaps a couple of thousand words yeah and then suddenly he's like, well, here we go. And it's 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 basically a way of carrying information about the Mayans to, to a young readership. Yeah. It's to, to carry a bit of history. So it is a vehicle for that. It's re- I wouldn't be surprised if he was told you need X number of facts per chapter or something. If, Quite possibly. And that doesn't make for great reading, but it doesn't mean... It's, it's not a bad way to learn. I mean, I don't know any much. I know more now yeah, than I, I knew about I... The, than I knew before I started. Although, interestingly... Just before I was born, about the time I was born, and it's never been repeated, I don't think, there was a programme in the UK on ITV, the third Mm. channel, that was called Feathered Serpent, Mm. starring the second Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton, as the priest of a tribe. Mm. And it's all about the feathered serpent and the myth and the legend surrounding it. Mm. And apparently it's quite scary, and one of the reasons they don't repeat it is because it's a kids' programme, but it involves quite a lot of disembowelling. Oh... So it was. I don't think they pulled any punches. Cool. Yeah. Lovely. That sounds good. So in summary, you've given it sixty-seven maize seeds. Yeah. I've given it fifty maize seeds. Yeah. That's enough for quite a good harvest, which gives us a grand Kenneth total of using the rounding down system, fifty-eight maize seeds. Fair enough. Mm, I think that's yeah. There we go. So we've dealt with the Winston science fiction stories of Evan Hunter. So are there other space hun- dinosaurs and Mayans, and that's more or less it for his kids' output. But what about? Did he ever do any more long-form science fiction of any? He book? did, yeah. He did some adult science fiction books, okay. one or two of them, and maybe we could get round to them at some point. But we've dealt with it. There we go. We can do that noise. That's us doing the hands Just together, going up for some more carbon. And... Yeah. So we can go and carry on our Christmas with our family now, can't we? Mm-hmm. This will be out in the new year, so anything you'd like to promote, Gary, while you're here? Only my existing output, nothing new. All my books are available on Amazon.co.uk, and they are currently all on KDP Select, which means if you're an Amazon Prime Prime person, you might be able to read them for free, or an Amazon Unlimited or something like that. Um, If not, they're not very much an e-book, or you can get them on copy. But they're called Transported, The Great Connection, and the dimension scales, or you can read all sorts of things from my, my old kind of blogs and things on garyabbott.co.uk. Um, but other than that, nah, not really. No. Oh, fair enough then. In that case, why don't you say goodbye to the nice ladies and gentlemen and everybody, and we'll finish up. Goodbye, everybody. Fare thee well. <laughs>